We love you. We thank you, God, for, Lord, just what a beautiful day you've given to us. And even, God, in the month of January, uh, Lord, a beautiful day that we can go outside and enjoy. And, Lord, we thank you for your grace. Uh, we pray, God, that you would uh, bless the time we have together this morning. Uh, Lord, I claim zero credit as a parent. And, Lord, really, truthfully, I believe that there's many other people who could, who could do this uh, more qualified. But, Lord, nevertheless, I pray that I would be able to be an effective teacher this morning. I pray, God, as we study your word, that your spirit would speak to us as each of us need. And we pray this in your name. Amen. And so we have been studying for the last several lessons, going back to early December, what it means to be spirit-filled. What it means to be spirit-filled. And this is based on the end of Ephesians chapter number 5. And what I encourage you was to not think about the chapter breaks. And when you think about the end of Ephesians 5, verse 21, about finding out the will of the Lord is, uh, and to also be filled with God's Spirit, uh, what I had suggested... What I'd suggest is that we take a step back and look like, what does it look like to be spirit-filled as an individual? We looked at that. We also took a step back and said, what does it look like to have a spirit-filled home uh, as a husband and a wife? And then for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at what does a spirit-filled home look like in terms of children and parents? So I will be very upfront with you this morning. If you came to a class where someone is considered to be an expert, their kids are perfect, their marriage is perfect, you have been to the wrong class. You've been to the wrong class. So this is a very raw lesson on parenting. Um, also, next week, Darren will be back, and I asked him, you know, his kids are growing. How old are Amber and Matt? Sorry. They're adults. They're adults. And, uh, and so Matt is very involved in worship, and his family is very involved in ministry. And as someone who is, we have many different life stages represented in here. We have married, how long? Uh, year and a half with those that have young children. We have those that have younger children. We have those that are mid-children, those that are on the upper end of growing, those who actually have like all the spectrum still. Um, and then we also have those whose kids are out of the house. Or, and so really, parenting never stops. Uh, parenting never stops. And so what I asked Darren is, as he is in a further stage of life than me, if he could just teach next week on parenting older children, parenting older teenagers, parenting young adults, um, and really... I believe that the most effective lessons are those that we're just open and honest with each other and that we more or less tell you what we learned along the way. And so that is the goal, the intent of next week. And so um, my challenge to those without children this morning, for instance, uh, perhaps those that don't have children yet or those whose children are grown and gone, um, is to think about this idea. Because our first thought is, well, this lesson doesn't really apply to me. I mentioned this last week. I mentioned the week before. This lesson doesn't apply to me for those reasons. But I want you to just take a step back and realize we're part of a gospel community that's bigger than just that. Um, am I involved in Awana on a Wednesday night? How, am I involved in a power hour? Am I involved in nursery? More than just is it directly related to me having children at home, is there a broader way that I can apply this? Um, so that's, that's the idea of what we're, we're, looking, we're looking for. And so... Um, we've been reviewing this three weeks ago. Where do we first see the command? When we talked about children obey your parents, well, we said this is first where? Exodus 20. And uh, we find that this is, uh, we find this is what? The Ten Commandments. And uh, we have the Ten Commandments being just the basic moral law uh, for the children. We have the horizontal commands talking about loving God, and then we have the horizontal commands about how we interact with our people. And uh, just like the first command is, lo- is uh, have no other gods before me, viewing that is obviously very important. The very first horizontal command is children obey your parents. It's the very first horizontal command. And so we believe that to be important for many reasons. How do we distinguish between obey and honor? And there's probably many ways that we could define these. Actions and attitude. Actions and attitude. Great alliteration. 
Okay, we have actions and attitude, and we likewise, we could do a little T diagram here, and we could talk even about, you know, we have a actions, and then we have attitude. We have actions, which are outward, and then we also have attitude, which would be inward, inward. And so um, we could talk a lot about that, and, um, and so we looked at that two weeks ago, and there's many reasons why, um, why children, why it's important that children learn to obey. What were some of those reasons we talked about? Okay, even... Let's first talk about just the human part, okay, what we might call a creation norm, the way that God designed creation to be, and that's because it's a basic foundation of society, okay? Because if the children are running amok, those children are going to become adults who then run amok, okay? What else? Obedience to God. Okay, so we have the next column, we have obedience to God, and we'll come back to that as a review here in just a minute, okay? What else? Okay, um, we we talked about the fact that you know there are blessings that come with it. This is the first command with a promise. Okay, and so I mean I know as a parent we want our children to be blessed. We don't want them to grow up to be judged. You know we want our children to be blessed. And so by by having putting them in a mindset of being of honor and obedience, we want our children to be blessed by God because it does come with a blessing. A um, couple things to kind of mention to you that we we reviewed or we taught last week is being careful about our target when it comes to parenting. Being very careful about our target with parenting. A very easy pitfall of parenting is to correct a child's outward behavior. Okay? But the Bible gives us a completely different target. And we looked at this a good bit last week. What is the target? The heart is. Otherwise, we can, we can teach our kids to be very good at manipulating the outside and hiding that sinful nature that we all have further and further and further down. We find in Proverbs uh, 23, 26, my son, give me your heart. And do remember one day they're going to be bigger than you. They're going to be able to leave your home and prayerfully I mean their heart is the only thing that you may or may not have and so you need to spend the time now investing in them because one day when they're grown and gone about the only thing you could do is appeal to their heart while praying to God's spirit to move in their life and so as parents we need to make an intentional effort and it's messy it takes a lot of time okay and sometimes in, in our um, in our haste and in our flesh we make very quick decisions and we I mean it takes time to sit and talk about the heart and why did you do this and trying to teach them and uh, we have to be very careful to, to do that. The rest of that verse is let your eyes observe my ways. Yes. And more is caught than is taught. Yes. And uh, that's kind of, we're going to touch on that a little bit this morning in verse number four. But that's absolutely true because that very same verse says, uh, Son, give me your heart, observe my ways. And uh, if we're not careful, we can teach them one thing while do another. And we can provoke our children to wrath. And uh, that's part of what this morning is looking like. And so... Um, Pointing children, to, uh, this was what I, I kind of summarized. There were a couple things we taught in different sections last week, and I kind of combined it all together. Uh, the target of parenting, um, I would posit to you, I would propose to you, is we are pointing children towards a Godward orientation. Um, you know, it's, I don't want them to see me as the ultimate source of authority. I'm wanting them to see me as a proxy who keeps pointing them towards a Godward orientation. Um, while instilling a God conscience in them, call it the fear of God, Okay. Um, I'm wanting to constantly tell them, there, you know, there's a God who sees, there's a God who sees, there's a God who sees. Um, and then ultimately towards a Godward submission. And our prayer and our hope as we plant these seeds inside of them, um, that train up a child the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And again, I believe some of the better translations say that when he grows up, the, depart, the way will not depart from him. That God consciousness will stay there. Those, um, I can tell you there's been a time or two where I almost made something really, really stupid. In the back of my head, I heard my parents. And so never, ever, ever under, underestimate the importance of just instilling biblical truth in your child towards a God orientation that develops a God consciousness in there for a God submission. And that's what we talked about last week. 
So I mentioned these books last week. Um, if you would like this book list, I can give it to you. Um, specifically, we're going. I'm going to mention this morning, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. I'm going to, I pulled a quote from there this week. Uh, the one we looked at last week was Parenting by Ted Tripp. I read the introduction to you on ownership parenting versus ambassador parenting. Um, and then the book, um, Your Teenager is Not Crazy. It's where we live because that's our teenagers sometimes act that way. And by the way, I was thinking this morning, one of the challenges of teenagers is that they, is they, they think they're a lot older than they really are. Yes. Yes. And then in a sanctifying moment, God's Spirit reminds me, you're not as mature as you think you are either. <laughs> There's a lot about parenting that sanctifies you. Okay? Yep, because I was reminded that this morning. I was like, that's a really good point. And God's Spirit said, yeah, kind of like you think you are. Yeah. So we, we finished last week reading the introduction where... Um, trip in this case he contrasted ownership parenting versus ambassador parenting and i would remind you he, um paul trip talks a lot about the living between the already and the not yet how that you know we we recognize that there is a grace for salvation and that there's a future grace of restoration but a lot of times we fail in the present grace that he offers uh, the equipping the, the 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 wisdom the knowledge god's spirit that we need in this present moment that it is ready and available for you and us as parents and uh, parenting is hard, but we're thankful that, that we could run to God daily for this grace, divine favor, wisdom, direction, resilience, and strength. Because you know, um, that ultimately what is encouraging to me is that God is sovereign even over my, even over my mistakes as a parent. Okay? God is sovereign even over those. And so in Spirit-Filled Homes, we looked at Ephesians 6 has kind of been our main go-to verse as we've been studying this. But we also saw last week that Paul wrote a very same verse uh, to the people in Colossae. Uh, he wrote a little more succinctly in Colossians 3, um, but we have children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And if I had a penny for every time my parents made me recite that verse, okay? Um, and I remember it, God, God conscious. Honor your father and your mother is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you that you may live long in the, in the land. And there's a blessing with that. We see that in a spirit-filled home in Colossians, he says something similar. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Likewise, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Because we have a naturally selfish bent, myself included, we have a natural response to be more focused on my rights than my responsibilities. Okay? I am looking and saying, well, as a husband, my wife is not fill in the blank. She never burns the food, by the way. So that's not it. Um, you know, okay, okay, let's just be honest. We have a naturally selfish bent, and that very same bent is where God says you're supposed to love someone else as well as you love yourself. It is not a natural response because we are more focused on ourselves. These are my rights. These are my rights. Instead, a spirit-filled person says, you know what? I'm supposed to die to my flesh. What is my responsibility, regardless of whether or not I can? Because, folks, it is unfair to put that on any person because no person can be that except Christ. Nobody can, okay? And so it is not a natural response of the flesh to put someone else above ourselves, but it is a natural byproduct of being spirit-filled. And I believe that's why Paul specifically addresses being spirit-filled because we can't do it without it. Okay? We can't do it in the flesh. Um, and if we do it in the flesh, we don't do it for very long, and we typically don't do it very well. Okay? And we kind of throw those like, subtle like passive-aggressive jabs in there while we do it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and so... What? Uh, okay. All right. So what, what we find here is also when it comes to our parenting. If we're not careful in our parenting, we become more focused on my rights as a parent rather than my responsibility as a parent. Okay? Because after all, even though we kind of theologically know this, we don't really live it in thinking, I realize that I'm not the divine source of authority, but then we act like we are. Okay? Um, 
So when, when we turn our attention to Ephesians 6, to a spirit-filled homes, what does this look like for children? Just like a wife's nat- natural response is not to put the, not, not to look at, at her rights, just like the husband, the same. Likewise, when it comes to in the home. That was confusing. So what does it look like for a spirit-filled person okay, to die to self? And for the children, they are to obey and honor. This is not a natural response for any child. It is not a natural response. Every person has a kingdom in their heart and they want to be king or queen. Everybody. And if we are honest, it, it applies to us too. Okay? That model prayer, your, your kingdom come and your will be done, not mine. Okay? This is not a childish thing. And yep. So each of us have to be, each of us have this kingdom in our heart, just like our children. And it is not a natural response for, for children to just submit. Likewise, just like it's not our response, our natural response is submit to God's spirit. Okay? Note, we should be constantly remembering that children are a blessing and not a curse. Okay, now again, theologically we might know that, but sometimes in the moment in the flesh it might not feel like it in those moments. Psalm says that, that children are like arrows in the hands of a mighty man. And you realize that arrows can be used for good and bad. And you also realize that arrows will only go in the direction that they're sent. And also, blessed is the person whose quiver is full of them. However, we could even look at the world today and by the, just the rates of children being born in the world today, in many cases, children are viewed, viewed as social interruptions. As an interruption to my career. The Bible says that blessed are those whose quiver is full of them. And I think full is a very relative word because sometimes we, we, can, we, can, we can argue that. Um, so, and I'll be honest with you, in parenting teenagers, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, in parenting teenagers, one of my prayers for this year is, Lord, please restore the joys of parenting. <laughs> please restore the joys of parenting. And I was reminded, joy is not the absence of difficulty. Really, what I'm wanting is I'm wanting perfect kids. But there's a problem with that. Oh, well. Well, the problem with that is they have an imperfect parent. And that I'm expecting something out of my kids that I'm not even able to do. And the joy in parenting is not having perfect kids. The joy in parenting is not getting my identity from my parenting, not getting my worth from parenting. We were, Joanne and I were talking about that a little bit this morning. We talked about it last week as well. So looking at a couple of different ways that verse 4 is translated, because we have in the ESV fathers, and I think we could very loosely just apply to parents, okay? Uh, do not provoke your children to anger. And Darren next week is going to talk about the second part of it, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He'll be teaching on that. I want you to look at a couple of different ways it's also translated. Fathers, do not irritate and provoke your children to anger. So for instance, sometimes me not being a morning person, my dad would come in singing in the morning like horribly off tune. Okay, I don't necessarily think that that's what it's talking about. Okay, Not like a fun kind of... We're talking about something a little bit more than that. One of the best words I've heard is actually in the Amplified, and, and it was actually years and years ago when we were um, visiting a church, in, um, my in-laws church in uh, South Carolina. Don't exasperate them. Don't exasperate your children. And another translation, and now a word to you fathers, don't make your children angry by the way you treat them. And in Philip's literal translation, he says, Fathers don't overcorrect or make it difficult for them to obey these commandments. 
And so some questions that I was thinking through this week is, well, what then does it mean to provoke? Because folks, let's take a step back. For him who knows what to do but doesn't do it, it's sin. So if I am aware that I'm provoking my child, I am sinning. And Christ said, it is better for me to cast a millstone around your neck than for you to offend a little one. Okay? So we're talking this morning about what does it mean to provoke your child? And we could even just say any child. And then we're going to be very practical this morning on what does that actually look like? So... So what is it about human nature that when it says wet paint don't touch, there's just something inside of us. I just want to touch it. I can't explain it. I know I'm not supposed to. I just, I just want to do it. You know, you have that red button that says do not press this button. And you're like, mm, but I want to. I don't know what it does, but simply because you told me not to, I want to. There's something about this in human nature. And likewise... Our children get that from us. Sin passed along from Adam. That child says, oh, look, mom's last nerve. I want to touch it. Where where you as a parent, you are just exasperated. And you're like, I'm about had it. One more time, the kid almost kind of feels like it's a challenge. Like, one more, more, that's it. I wonder if I can get mom to snap. I wonder if I can get dad to blow up. There's something about this. I want you to notice that Paul wrote this in the present tense. If Paul wrote it in the present tense to not provoke your children to wrath, what do you think is the implication for you and I? Still a problem. It is something that every parent struggles with. If he wrote in the present tense, it's like he's saying, stop doing it. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's take a step back. I don't want examples yet. We'll get to that. Okay, plug there. What does it mean to actually provoke? Not examples yet. What does it mean to provoke? We have lots of great examples when our kids do it to each other, but we struggle when we think about me doing it to my child, though. Okay, so we think about not an example yet, but what do you think it means to provoke? Instigate. Irritate on purpose? Yes. An intentional irritation with the intent of making someone mad. Or rather we'll say, and I would I would say in, in terms of biblical accountability, it is not necessarily if I get mad, it's my fault. Okay? However, am I intentionally doing something to create the circumstances where I know someone's anger is going to be triggered? Okay? One of the splice definitions I put together is provoking someone to anger is to cherish resentment over the person, to exasperate, and as Carl mentioned, to irritate someone to the point of anger. In other words, we don't stop, and we don't stop, and we don't stop. And this is not necessarily just towards children, but specifically that's where Paul is writing it. He's writing it towards children. Um, um, I, if you remember, for those that were here, uh, we talked about put off and put on um, in Ephesians 5 about anger. And the thing that just blew me away, and maybe for those that are a bit more mature than I, you might say, well, duh. But you know, sometimes you like your study and you come across something that you've never noticed before, but it's like, oh, okay. The Bible never says don't be angry. The Bible never says it. Be angry, but don't sin. 
Anger is, char- is, is rooted in the character of God because God gets angry when people sin. sin. However, the distinguishing between my anger and God's anger is normally mine is not a holy righteous anger. I'm angry because the kids are yelling and I want quiet. Okay? Um, that's my fleshly response. And so anger is a divine trait rooted in the character of God, but our sinful nature has a strong tendency to get angry about the wrong things and even when it's the right things, it's typically for the wrong reason. So an example. Our child throws a temper tantrum in the store for a third time. It is likely that our anger is not because God is a holy God and we recognize that they have sinned against him. It's because we're embarrassed. And we feel like people are judging us because of the product of our children. Okay? Another example. Our teenager replies in a disrespectful tone. Our anger is likely not because we process that, man, I'm just a messenger, and they just disrespected God. (laughs) Okay? Likely not the reason. Okay? So, just as our children know our buttons, let's be real. We as parents know theirs too. We do know the the buttons of our, our kids. And the blasted thing... Just when you figure uh, every child is different, they have different personalities, and just when you start to figure them out, they change. It's so frustrating. And so, thus the need for present grace. Think about this. Just as our children know our buttons, we know theirs. If we as adults struggle with our anger, how much more do you think they struggle with it? So, thus, instead of me looking at my rights as a parent... Paul says parents need to take a step back and look at their responsibility to make sure they're not provoking their child. So, in an interesting note, the Old Testament uses very similar language that Israel provoked God to anger. But as we just looked at, God's anger is rooted in holy righteous anger where ours typically is not. We can see in Deuteronomy 4.25 where God said, don't do this because if you do it, you're going to provoke, Moses said, you're going to provoke God to anger. And the Israelites being sinful, broken people, just as you and me, we find in Deuteronomy 32, they have made me jealous with what is, with what is no God. They have, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So we do see that it's not necessarily the provoking to anger as much as there is typically a righteous anger, and there's also an unrighteous anger. In um, Ted Tripp's book, again, Ted Tripp, Shepherding the Heart, um, Paul Tripp on parenting, um, he says, you and your child have different roles, but you also have the same master. If you allow unholy anger to muddy the correction process, you are wrong. You need to ask for forgiveness both to the child and to God. Your right to discipline your children is tied to what God has called you to do and not your own agenda. We read last week ownership parenting versus ambassador parenting. I I am in place of the king. I am trying to point my children towards the message of the king. However, in many cases, we feel like we are the king. Unholy anger, anger over the fact that you are not getting what you want from your child will muddy the waters of discipline. And folks, we expect our kids to behave better than we do. Okay, We don't obey God the first time. We struggle with anger. We don't always do what's right the first time. But for some reason, we expect out of them something that even we don't do. Anger that your child is not doing what you want frames discipline as a problem between the parent and the child. Not as a problem between the child and God. 
Folks, we, we are simply here to point our children towards a Godward orientation. That's what we are. We see in Proverbs 17, 22, a broken spirit dries the bones. We can discipline and parent our children in such a way that we break their spirit. Proverbs 29, verses 1 and 2, a hardened, we can discipline in such a way that we can harden the neck of our kids. And in moments where they're just they're struggling, they're struggling, struggling, if we're not careful, he that's often approved hardens his neck. And we have to be very careful the tenderness even of our child's heart to not crush it in such a way that we develop a, a strong and rebellious heart towards authority. So let's talk about some practical ways, real street level, not theoretical, okay? I'm going to give you some of my examples, okay? Some specific ways that you as a parent can provoke your child to anger, all right? So our oldest son cuts grass. This happened last year and I was convicted. Here it is in the middle of the day on a Saturday. It's probably like 90-something degrees outside, 150% humidity here in North Carolina, and, and there was something that he didn't do before he left, okay? I forget what it was. He didn't do it. So me, in a moment of flesh-filled response, I picked up my phone and I texted him about something he didn't do. And all of a sudden, I realized that was stupid. What can he do right now in this moment? Do you really expect him to stop where he's at, 30 minutes away, 45 minutes away, come straight home and do it right then? You, you as a parent might feel you, it might have been appropriate. I, re, I realize you know, when you get home from work, you typically want to just like relax, right, for just a, a few minutes. You want to kind of, and here I am texting my kid with something in the middle of the day, and I was immediately convicted. I probably shouldn't have done that. Okay, that was something for me. Walking through the door and my first interaction with my child is, I don't do. I don't have any attempt to pour into them. I don't ask them how their day was. My first attempt is just like you know, you get a text message, you know, and you come home like with guns blazing, you know. Um, what about when you won't apologize to your kid for something that you did? I could have handled that better, and I'm sorry. Perhaps using the words "never" and "always," which, if we're honest, are seldom true. That's something that will provoke a child to wrath. Disciplining and anger. That's another one. In a moment, my child is struggling, and I raise my voice, knowing what their response is going to be. When we tell our child to do something, but then we do something differently. Would anyone, would anyone care to add to my list of Parenting reflection, something that you have seen that provokes a child to anger. Unreasonable expectations or unattainable, you know. Yes. Not understanding the difference between their weakness and their sin, disciplining the weakness that they're struggling with mm-hmm. rather than giving a goal to achieve um, and the reward for that as soon as it is achieved is taken away as a punishment for something that you've done. Mm-hmm. Very good. Correct. Because that has a tendency to do what? Embarrass. To embarrass them. Because as parents, our goal should not mean... Now, we do know that if you do stupid stuff, you're going to be embarrassed. If you do something stupid, you're going to have consequences. It's something different when you do it in such a way that you could embarrass your child. And really, the parenting heart should be for correction. Okay? 
find a chat with them too once like one of the kids eats something they shouldn't it's on their face and you ask them do you eat that cookie or the teenager did you take that when you know the answer and mm -hmm. you're setting them up so that you can come down on them and that provokes them to anger because you're not mm -hmm. being a fair you know what I mean mm -hmm. you, you already know the answer you already know they did it so why would you give them the opportunity mm -hmm. to hang themselves so that then mm -hmm. you can turn around and come down on them and that's very provoking it is it is I'm going to give you a rapid fire of 10 things that I, I found. As soon as I found it Wednesday, I was like, this is a good list. So this list is not mine. So we're not necessarily going to debate the nuances of micromanaging or micro-studying these words as much as the spirit of these words in a very generic application. Okay. One, overprotecting. Now, again, you could say, okay, overprotecting, look on one's hand and say, well, I don't agree with that. You'll notice what the second bullet point is, underprotecting. Okay? It's not my list. It's John MacArthur, so you can email him. Okay? So, never allowing them any liberty, strict rules about everything. They do not trust their kids, and the child despairs and can lead into rebellion. Parents must communicate that they trust. Likewise, you have the polar opposite. You have underprotecting. Interestingly, you know that verse from Proverbs that says, a child left himself will... Bring his mother to shame. Just as one pendulum goes and doesn't trust a child with anything, likewise, you have the other side where there's just they're left to themselves. Um, can you think of an Old Testament example of a certain priest whose children? Eli. He he knew he knew what they were doing, and he would not restrain them. I mean, that was God's specific word to Samuel. He knows what his sons are doing, and he will not restrain them. You have one pendulum swing that's overprotection. You have another pendulum swing that is a lack of structure altogether. Um, favoritism. And the thing to be careful of is in our mind, we know we shouldn't do it, but are we implicitly doing it without realizing it? Do we have a tendency to praise one child more publicly than we do another? We can see several examples in Scripture of this, and it's actually within like the same one or two generations. Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Esau was favored by his father. Likewise, Isaac was favored by, or I'm sorry, Jacob was favored by Isaac. Jacob learned that, and he practiced it, and he favorited Joseph. And what did that create in the family dynamic? Significant bitterness and tension. And again, we're not going to any of us say, you know, no, favoritism is fine. I think where we struggle is the implicitness of when we do it and don't realize it. I think that's where we struggle. That's very good. That is very true. That's that was a good catch. I love all mine the same. I'm just going to say that. And I have it recorded. I have it recorded. Um, Something else is depreciating them. Something else is depreciating them. Degrading a child's sense of worth or public worth, going to what Annette said. Um, so a parent may inadvertently depreciate their child by not listening to them. Mom, mom, dad, dad. In other words, you are not valuable enough for me to put this down. 
Also, by not being mindful, the idea of mindfulness is I am present in the moment. I'm not looking at anything else. I'm not doing anything else. I am paying attention only to you because you're worth my time. You're worth my attention. More important than anything else, right now I'm being mindful. We can devalue them by not showing any praise for a deed they accomplished. Look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. Ah, you know, good job. And then we just kind of like dismiss it. Um, A word of caution. In seasons where our kids are struggling, we can be so focused on the negative struggles that when we fail to see that they actually tried and it skews our perception on everything that they do. That would be depreciating them. Unrealistic expectations, and this was mentioned. We have to recognize every child is unique. Okay? You know, we, we lift this kid up for being, you know, amazing in this, and then this child can't do the same thing, and we s- somehow try to group them in the same value of, of, of metrics of worth and value. They're different. Hobbies, abilities, talent, school, all that. All that. Um, apathy. Every child has his or her own love language. You know, you can do the whole Chapman thing on the five love languages, and, you know, then you found a sixth one to publish a new book. Um, Everyone has a different love language, and, and I do believe that there is a, a good piece of merit behind it because we have, we have one child, love language is touch. Another one is time. Okay? We realize that every child has a different form of love that they feel. And if my, parent, if my child is struggling, how much time am I spending pouring into that emotional bank? Um, John Newton said this, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. I knew my dad loved me, but he didn't want me to know that he did. That's tough. Not providing for their needs. What is so difficult about the ambiguity of that statement? They don't know what they want. Exactly. They don't know what they think they need the iPhone Yes. We live in a materialistic world where need and want are synonymous with each other. So, yes. At the same time, at the same time, First Timothy five eight says those that don't care for their own are are reprobates, worse than an unbeliever. Criticism, criticism. Webster defines it this way: Merriam-Webster expression of disapproval of someone or something based on perceived faults or mistakes. Now, there's a a balance in this: correcting without being critical, because the Bible tells us that a froward heart finds no good. It's like someone like they can't find good in anything. Just everything is negative. Everything is critical. But we also realize as a parent that there is an undeniable, I have to correct. I can't not correct. And then you have this other part where Proverbs, when you look at like harsh discipline in in Proverbs, I found this interesting. So if you find something different this week, let me know. Proverbs never actually says don't harshly discipline your children. What it says that harsh discipline is for those that are scoffers. Harsh discipline is those who forsake the way. Harsh discipline. In other words, if you're stupid, you're going to have consequences. Okay, and the more someone rejects correction, the harsher it is. The balance in that, though, is that we do it in a gracious, loving way that is equitable to how God the Father treats us, without us developing a critical spirit towards our kids. Um, neglect. Um, the example that I read this week was David and his son Absalom. Like, he lived 
Absalom lived for like how many years in Jerusalem and his dad never came to see him. Knowing his son was struggling and he didn't go to his kid. Yes. A very good reason why to pour into your children also, so they don't do that. Yes. Um, failing to care for someone or pay attention to them. And then excessive discipline. Discipline not intended for correction, but to instill resentment, shame, or hurt, whether physical or mental. And so, depreciating them. Underless expectations. I think I already did that one. I duplicated the slide, sorry. Um, while children are called to honor and obey, parents are called to discipline in the spirit with dignity while not abusing their God-ordained authority. Our responsibility. I heard once that there is no such thing as a recipe book for parenting. You're not going to find it. You need a dash of this, three quarters of that. You need a teaspoon of that. You're not going to find it. Every child is different, which is an even greater reason why we need to be spirit-led, spirit-filled each and every day. And so perhaps my greatest challenge as a parent is to run daily to God for daily grace and also to seek God's spirit. There's one more. Ultimately, this is good. Ultimately, how we love, lead, and discipline our children will drastically affect the way they view their Heavenly Father. If I am an overbearing, quick-to-anger, harsh father... That more than likely is going to be how they view God. Because again, we're just messengers. We're ambassadors of the king. So let us be spirit-filled in our parenting because frankly, we all need it. (laughs) All right, Sam. Sam.